Welcome back to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people by BDO Canada, Dan Delmar and Mike Newton with you this afternoon. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thanks. So today we have a real juggernaut uh, in the tech community in Montreal, Valsoft. They've been buying up various software companies, uh, a lot of industrial applications, um, software that is described as mission critical, that runs businesses, that runs large scale operations. And Sam is trying to group a lot of these Canadian and American firms under one roof. Yeah, and it's interesting because obviously when you're doing that environment, you're looking to find an advantage, right? You're looking to find an exercise that makes a difference in that business that you see potential in. Uh, for companies that are already growth stage companies, sometimes that's not as simple as it is. Uh, there's a lot of businesses out there that have a lot of latent uh, valuation in them. Uh, and I think this is what he goes to. And he'll talk about lifestyle businesses a little bit later on. And also we'll talk about estates and estate planning. Um, and Wills, the importance of all of that and getting that in order, especially for entrepreneurs, Amanda Curry will be along our expert from BDO Canada with some advice on that and how that can go so awry uh, as we have the Succession show premiering the new season coming up in a few weeks. Have you seen it yet, Mike, the Succession show on HBO? Uh, no, I have not had a chance to sit down and watch the whole thing. I've watched a couple of episodes that have really got me enticed to sit down and do it. Uh, unfortunately, my time in front of the TV is limited. I'm not completely convinced it's a show my wife's going to like, so I have to uh, find a time to be able to watch uh, numerous years on on a relatively short schedule. It may feel like work a little bit, <laughs> so maybe. Uh, I'm not so concerned about that. It's more the uh, the short attention span that gets to me. I hear you. Okay, let's uh, let's try to keep those attention spans now with a discussion on current events and important uh, one important quality in particular, Mark, that you want to begin with today that is increasingly critical for leaders of organizations to adopt in every policy. And uh, in a word, it's empathy that you want to talk about today. Yeah, empathy is is become really uh, a very vital conversation, and I'm going to take this in two directions because I think that the proper use of empathy is underused. I think we are not uh, exhibiting enough uh, empathetic qualities and understandings. However, I can take the pendulum the other way, where empathy has now become uh, overused. Uh, as a term, maybe not in its proper application, but in the over usage of the term to the point where it has now become a reason or an excuse as opposed to actually being something that we should be using positively. And, and I think in, in anything that becomes popular, you end up with that, that spectrum of usage where you say, hey, here's a great idea. Here's something that we should be using properly. Here's this empathetic component to, to understanding humanity and putting ourselves in other people's shoes and doing something I don't do well, which is listening and, and hearing people to the other side of the coin from sometimes it's an employee perspective as, hey, you guys aren't empathetic enough. And, you know, it's like you're not giving me enough feedback. Where does that line get drawn? It's interesting because empathy has to be more about empathy signaling or, you know, uh, just writing words in a memo. It has to be actually uh, getting one on one with your employees um, and finding out uh, accommodations or solutions that could make them um, more productive and happier. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you got to consider that, uh, you know, many teams or many people are, with, you know, cauldrons of bubbling emotions at the end of the day, right? And you, you can take that and, and our job as leaders is to intuitively sense and understand the viewpoints that everybody has sitting around the table. And 
you know, if if one person does not take that leadership role in bringing empathy out into a conversation, or even more so making it a place of safety where empathy can be understood and respected, then it now becomes a point where it's seen as I just don't care, you're not listening to me. And now my emotions are going to swing from, hey, I've got something on the surface I want to discuss, to going into some latent scenario where it's pushed down. And all of a sudden, now it's gone from, hey, we can do something with this and make something from it to, oh my God, here we go. We got another problem on our hands. I want to deal with a taboo. And uh, I don't think we've ever talked about this taboo before, but some leaders, Mike, aren't great with empathy. And if that is the case, if you are a leader that's not great at empathy, that's not, there's not, there are solutions to that too, right? There are other leaders in the organization, your head of HR, for example, that can maybe fill the gap there. 100%. I mean, the fact that you may not be good at empathy does not prohibit you from understanding that empathy is important. So, you know, I I can take that discussion, you know, we get into an emotional intelligence, there's five key key areas of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. So when you take those, you don't necessarily have to be good at all of them. But like you say, you need to have somebody who is, and you need as the leader that ability to open the door to dialogue and open the door for other people to provide what you can't be providing. So it's not about being perfect and great at everything. It's about having people around you that are are capable of assisting. I want to bring in a couple of topics about remote work now. I, I know your favorite topic, Mike, and uh, it uh, from both sides. I want to get both sides on, on this issue, the pro and the con. First, on the critical side, the former head of the public service. This is from the Globe and Mail a few weeks ago, warning that working from home could hamper careers. And uh, this person, uh, Michael Wernick, who was uh, the uh, clerk of the Privy Council, said that working from home could negatively impact the careers of public servants, hamper their ability to learn from colleagues, and as well um, create disorganization among the federal service. Uh, When people come back, they find they no longer have that same system in place, the services, the desks are changed. What are your thoughts on uh, on the long-term prospects of, uh, of hybrid work? Well, hybrid work and remote work to me are two very different things. And, and, and I know they encompass remote work. But the discussion of re- remote work to me leaves me with the impression that that's a full-time position as opposed to a hybrid environment. I do believe that there is a massive value in being in an office environment I'm not going to tell you how many days a week because my my opinion is probably going to vary from a lot of others. Um, but I believe that some of our greatest education comes at watching colleagues act properly or not so properly at the end of the day. It's part of the education. I go back to, you know, when I started at Fuller Landau, which was Fuller Jenks Landau in 1989. And I've tried to put my my myself in the position of some of the younger people in the last few years through COVID that have been working remotely. And, and I think of how much they have lost by not being on site from an educational perspective. And yes, we can talk about policy and procedure and we can talk about you know, where your desk is and all the rest of it. For, for me, there's an educational, educational component that just does not work so well from a remote perspective. So I think that from a long-term perspective, yes, this is gonna hamper a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of the professions, definitely, uh, and certainly a lot of uh, human interaction. On the other side, the pro uh, working remote side, this one from Benefits Canada, a study finds that remote working is giving employees back, wait for this, Mike, 72 minutes per day. 
On average, according to the source, uh, Benefits Canada, employees spend 40% of that saved time completing extra work on primary and secondary jobs, while a third, 34%, was spent on leisure, 11% towards caregiving duties, and this according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Research. So I guess that pauses for me to comment on this one. Uh, uh-huh. I, you know, I will try and I will try and stay reasonably politically correct uh, in my in my discussion. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that the allocation of those seventy two minutes uh, is always used properly. And uh, I think this is you know if you're going to give somebody back time, I fully believe that we should be doing something with our time. Uh, so I agree. If you're if you are doing something that is productive, if you're contributing to the community, if you're spending time with your family, I can see the value to it. If I'm parked in front of a video uh, video game or I'm uh, spending more time on social media, I beg to differ that you may not be better off working. Although I will argue, and I'll use this this very program as an example. You'll recall in the before times, we used to gather at the studio in person, all together, coordinate all of that. In the after times, we set up remote studios here and at BDO, and we, we tape this remotely, which is easier on the entrepreneurs themselves because we're wasting less of their time. All that's packaged in, I think, on average, I would say three times less time to, to do this show than before. So what do you think? Are we an example of the fact that hybrid work can also succeed sometimes? Oh, 100%. And that's why I'm saying to you, the hybrid env- the environment works. I'm not sure full remote works. And I think, again, it's a function of what do you do with that extra time? You know, if I take the time that I'm saving uh, from traveling to and from the radio show and parking and everything else, and I use it something productive and something productive obviously is a personal perspective, then it's, it, it's, it's useful. If I spend it gouging uh, myself on chips and, uh, and chocolate and uh, watching trash TV, I'm not sure it's a contribution to society. So, you know, again, it, it really is like everything else. It's for the total number of hours and, and time you spend during the day. How productive are you? And definition of productive is, is purely a perspective uh, issue. I know it's more difficult in, in some professions, certainly in accounting than in my case, in, in writing and in creative endeavors, you know, as long as uh, my people meet their deadlines, which they always do, and as long as it's quality work, it, I don't have a whole lot of time to think about where they're doing it from or, or, or in, under what circumstances. I, look, I, I, so the question that, that is in front of us today, and we won't know this for five or 10 years, is, is that ability to do what you're doing and get today's job done at the expense of some future growth? Okay, and 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 this is where I get concerned. And and having spent, you know, 30, almost 35 years in an office environment uh, and having watched the effects of of COVID on uh, human interaction and the learning curve associated with that, um, I think we are enjoying the benefits of remote work at the expense of either future uh, personal growth or of an experience that, you know, at some point in time is being robbed from you. You know, you sit down and, and, and what you can gain at 22, 23 years old and the sponge-like environment of watching people interact. You know, I've said for years, and, and, and I'm probably going to offend a whole bunch of accountants out there, this is not rocket science accounting. The dealing with people and the interactive component of human nature is the, is the difficult component. So yeah, can you do your job efficiently and effectively from home if you're most definitely. Let's find out where they are in five years from now. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I agree with you on that point. And I've noticed myself, of course, I mean, not that I'm a master networker uh, myself I'm going to events, but I, I'm going to certainly fewer events now. I'm getting fewer requests for in-person talks, you know, talking to employees or boards or whatever. There is a certain 
certain, uh, I guess, hesitation to have uh, still to have some some even distanced indoor gatherings. Yeah, I, I, I'm unclear at this point whether that is COVID based, whether that is PTSD based or whether that has become complacency based. And it's probably in, 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 in many cases, a little bit of, of the three. Uh, you're certain people that just can't get back to socializing quick enough. Um, but there are a lot of people that are really comfortable. Uh, like you said, uh, you know, um, we're not doing the show from the radio station. We're doing it from here. I will be the first to admit that this is a heck of a lot more comfortable for me than hopping in the car. So, you know, if I can get away with it, I'm going to. So in this case, we'll have a meaningful conversation remotely, but sometimes you just want to be, uh, you just have to be in person. So um, we'll, we'll see you soon, Mike, in person. I, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. And our guest, let's get right to him. He is the founder and CEO of Valsoft, a company worth north of a billion dollars right now that acquires all kinds of software companies and tries to uh, grow them exponentially around the world. Sam Youssef joins us now. Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneur, Sam. Dan Newton, how are you guys? Everything good? Very good, thank you. Very good, thanks. Uh, why don't you please start by telling us, quite simply, in your definition, what is Valsoft? So Valsoft is, uh, is an acquire vertical market software companies. It's uh, made up of 65 different small ver uh, vertical market software companies that cater to the needs of uh, small, medium, and large businesses within a, a narrow uh, sub-industry like marinas, hotel, forestry, etc. Sam, tell me a bit about your growth story, how you got from, um, from the beginnings of Valsoft to today. So we, well, I've been an entrepreneur since uh, I'm a teenager. I've always had a passion for it, started very early. I had a landscaping business at like 14 years old, going door to door, getting people to sign contracts and, and cutting their, their grass in the summer, shoveling their snow in the winter. By like 15 years old, I think I had 50 people around my neighborhood and, and, and a good business. Then I went on to other stuff, affiliate marketing, sold some businesses and started an investment company called um, Valsef Capital in 2011, raised the money from our group of entrepreneurs and, and uh, some friends, and we put together $21 million in uh, 2011. And we started, you know, getting really passionate about investment and growing companies. And I must have read 100 or 150 books about investing, travel to different investment conferences and start investing in, in uh, the stock market and did really well. And the more we did that, the, the, the more we fell in love with, we, we start understanding businesses fine-tuning what we invest in, looking for better and better businesses with better, better, better and better economic characteristics, it started drawing us to software companies. Software companies have a high amount of recurring revenue. They have a mission-critical status with their customers, uh, where, where, where sort of the, the software company helps them run the business. A lot of people in the company are trained on uh, a specific suite of software. And it's a tiny piece of the operating expenses of the business. So uh, the price is not that meaningful. So you have a situation where the software company has a lot of pricing power, stickiness with its customer, and you know, software was growing a lot and it's still growing a lot in the world. So it yielded to um, sort of a, a consortium of events that was likely to uh, yield to the creation of companies that would generate a lot of shareholder value. 
we likened it to like the newspaper industry in the early part of the century or the cable business in the 80s sort of it was getting everywhere going everywhere and it was like the business to be in to uh, really take advantage of the times so then we we start analyzing the different business models and we start investing into publicly traded software companies and did really well with that and then we we looked at you know what are the best software companies and you know we found that the best ones were the ones that garnered to a specific uh, vertical so software for forestry companies software for small hotels software for marinas the reason those were really really good companies is because there wasn't huge amount of money chasing these fields so not a lot of people, not a lot of large private equity firms, venture capital firms, and, and pools of capital are going after the marina business. It's just too small, right, to create a, a large business. So these verticals were sort of structured as small oligopolies where there would be five, six players in there, and each player would have its own segment of the market, and they all had been there for 20, 30 years, maintaining and defending their positions. And you had these small three, five, ten million dollar companies uh, that, you know, had been around a really long time and were really, really good businesses. So we're like, let's try to buy them and see if we could run them a little bit better uh, because they're often ran as as family uh, businesses, lifestyle businesses. So we bought one company in 2016 and did really well with that. The year after we bought three companies, the year after seven companies. And last year in 2022, we bought 25 companies. Average size of our company is three, four million dollars. And we grew the company from zero to 300 million dollars or so uh, within six years. Through doing that, through buying companies, making cash with these companies and reinvesting that cash into buying uh, more companies that will make us more profits and we'll use these profits to buy more companies and eventually we'll take the company public and uh, keep doing that the same playbook the same value creation methodology that has been working for us uh, the vertical market software uh, industry is there's basically 60,000 companies or so in there so it's really really large and over the next 20 years is going to consolidate to 100 or or less companies and we'd like to hopefully be one of the leaders of that consolidation. So Sam, um, basically you brought up two points in there that I think you, you should probably define for our, uh, for our listeners, mission critical services um, and lifestyle business. So start with the first mission critical service. What is that? And, and, and how does that play into your investment style? And, and, and why are you looking for that? Yeah. So at the end of the day, a good business is one that has pricing power. The, the number one way to define a good business for me is pricing power. Why? Because pricing power enables you to have good margins. Having good margins on your product enables you to give a better service or a better, better product to your customers. So you'll have happier customers, and these happier customers will get you other customers. And your business will have sustainability, profitability, and growth for a long period of time. Now, if I, I am selling you corn and Dan is selling you corn. We have a commodity product. We are both selling you the same thing. You're going to pick the cheapest corn, right? Mm-hmm. Corn salesmen don't have pricing power. Now, if I'm selling you 
my software, which runs your forestry mill. And if my software goes down, okay, and all your staff is, is trained on my software, my software is mission critical to your business. Uh, you cannot afford for this, you cannot afford the disruption that would come with switching software provider. This creates an environment that is prone to uh, rational pricing or pricing power, which is prone to uh, building a better business. So the mission criticality of the solution, how important it is to your to your to your business, is an element that uh, foreshadows pricing power, which is important. Um, a lot of industrial applications in the companies that you're buying. Uh, you mentioned a lot of mission critical software. What kinds of companies are you looking for, and what qualities? In leaders are you looking for what kind of companies we're looking for so we're looking for companies that are that provide solutions that are very important uh, to their end customers so we're looking for companies that provide solutions that manage the customer's business right so uh, uh, software that manage we have software that manages the car rental operations of Hertz uh, we have software that manages uh, the 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 operations and the property management systems of some of the bigger hotel chains in the world. We have software that uh, manages the mills, the paper mills, and and the the uh, forestry mills of international paper. Uh, we we have these types of of software that manage uh, the infrastructure of the economy. So very important parts of the economy run on our solutions. So these are these are extremely uh, or vital pieces of technology infrastructure in the world. You mentioned earlier the discussion of, of being attracted to lifestyle businesses, uh, and uh, for our listeners, there's two differences. Basically, there's a lifestyle business and there's the value creation business. Uh, lifestyle business usually is about creating a lifestyle, taking the income and using it, not necessarily reinvesting versus the value builders, which ultimately have this constant reinvestment and are trying to increase the value of the business. Um, talk to us about why Lifestyles is a bit just a bigger opportunity because you you can reinvest in these where reinvestment hasn't occurred? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, so, sometimes, let's say you own a business and it's your personal family's business. Uh, not everybody's as ambitious uh, as we are, or not everybody has the same goals and dreams as we do. Uh, so they're going to run this business to optimize their family's lifestyle. So some cars might be on the business, uh, some trips might be on the business, some friends might be on the payroll. Uh, the wife, the mother, the cousin, they, they get them jobs, so they work together and enjoy that. Um, and and the sort of the goal of the business is to optimize the lifestyle of its uh, owners. So these businesses are, are not necessarily always reinvested into the way they should be. Uh, they're not always managed uh, for for optimal performance. A company like Valsoft would come in and we would manage these companies for the best interests of its customers. It's employees and its uh, owners so often inside these companies there's not a lot of growth potential for employees right because uh, the company's purpose is not necessarily to grow 
when Valsoft comes in, a lot of employees are like empowered. They're like, okay, now we could grow within this company. We could start going from managing R&D at this company to managing R&D at this group of companies or at this whole vertical. Uh, we could become a portfolio manager, a company leader. There's a lot more growth opportunities that are unleashed uh, through the professional management of businesses. So, And there's usually a lot of uh, financial low-hanging fruit. I find it interesting on your website, you make reference to building your culture. Uh, I will tell you that, you know, a lot of the investment companies we've heard of, culture doesn't necessarily seem to be at the forefront of, of what's being built. Um, talk to us a little bit about what culture you're trying to create and and where you think that culture is going to go. So for us, it's we call it the builder culture here at uh, Valsov. It's a very entrepreneurial uh, mindset. Uh, we believe that the power to make their own mistakes is what people really want. So we empower them with that. We give people a lot of autonomy, a lot of freedom to make mistakes, make errors, uh, grow. If you don't give people the ability to make, uh, to have their own uh, failures and mistakes, you're not really giving them the opportunity to have their own successes either because the decisions are never really theirs. So we have a culture where we really try to empower people and give them a lot of autonomy, freedom, access to our resources, and go and, and buy businesses for us, build businesses for us, and let's grow something together, build something together. The other tenet of our culture is meritocracy. We believe deeply in the meritocracy system, where uh, in a company you have like sort of like the top 10%. Uh, the bottom 10% and the middle 80%. If the bottom 10% are treated the same way as the top 10%, then the, the, the middle 80% is sort of going to go towards the bottom. If the top 10% are put on a pedestal, given superior compensation and opportunity, whereas the bottom 10% are, uh, it's clear that they are the bottom 10% and that they should improve or they don't belong in your organization, then the middle 80% is going to move towards the top and you're going to have a company that performs. Uh, you're going to have staff in the company that uh, that cares and that, that uh, you know, what you value in the company is clear. So we try to, uh, we call it being fair. I guess there's a little bit of Jack Welch in, uh, in you guys in terms of your, your education, because that bottom 10% is a very Jack Welchian uh, that, discussion. That, that actually, uh, it's it's something we've put in place maybe 10 or 15 years ago after reading Jack Welch's book, Winning. It's interesting. And, and, it, and it, to a certain degree, I would say it's all, almost countercultural to a certain degree in what we're seeing in the world today, where there's this raising the bar uh, scenario, which uh, is bringing us back to, you know, my question is, which is going to be, what's you, what impact are you guys looking to have and what kind of legacy are you looking to achieve? I mean, there's there's the obvious uh, personal growth and, and financial growth of all of this, but do you have a bigger picture involved here in terms of your impact within the community and as well as, as a legacy down the road? So first of all, we've we've made uh, sort of all the companies within the Valsep group have signed an agreement where 1% of the net earnings of each company every year forever will be donated to the Dream Big Foundation, which we started uh, last year. So the bigger our, the footprint of our companies uh, grow, the bigger uh, its impact on the community. And we want to sort of focus the, the, 
the mandate of the foundation on making Montrealers' lives better. So the bigger our footprint, the bigger our impact on society. A lot of companies operate sort of like in a very parasite type of way where they take from the world. We want to, you know, be a little less like that and try to sort of give back uh, to the communities. But above that, I think our companies themselves provide something that that is valuable in this world. I think people are really happy to work here. We had over 96% employee satisfaction. Our employee NPS scores were some of the highest in the corporate world because I think what what we provide is sort of uh, unique in a, in a certain way. Like people that are really ambitious, people that care about their work, people that want to build something. There is such people out there, and uh, and there's less and less of a home for them. And I think we provide one. Sorry, how many employees do you have? Valsoft worldwide has about two thousand employees. That's through the that's through the various investments, correct? Through the various companies in Montreal, there's about two hundred. Okay. And real quick, Sam, any advice for onboarding so many different people from so many different companies into one organization? There's they're not all onboarded to the organization, but uh, cultures are powerful, and and it it sort of self selects if you stick to it. I mean, people see quickly if you're honest. And we try to be transparent. We also try to be, they see who succeeds and who fails quickly. And we make that clear. And uh, this it ends up self-selecting. The people that are comfortable in such an environment thrive. And then in, 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 an, in an economy like we have now where there's like 3% employment, well, people that don't like it, they, they go somewhere else, right? Sam Youssef from Valsoft, you're going to hang around. We'll have your one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs in a moment. But first, coming up next, we'll talk to our expert from BDO Canada, Amanda Curry, Manager, Estates and Trusts at BDO Canada. Welcome back, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. And Mike, uh, my favorite show, Succession, is coming up. So I thought it was, hey, what a great uh, what great timing. Let's talk about that, Succession, and how well, it usually doesn't go as awry as it does in the show, Succession. But, oh, you'd be surprised. Uh, you'd can. be surprised, Dan. It can. <laughs> um, succession, I guess, succession takes on two different parts here. We're going to discuss about succession in a grander scheme, which is the succession plan. Uh, I guess, shall we call after your demise, and, and and how you're going to move forward, as opposed to necessarily just a succession uh, in a, a business. So, Amanda, what do you say is the most important aspect to considering when putting together a succession plan? So, I would, I would say. Um, the most important aspects um, of estate planning or succession planning um, would have to be who you're choosing as your liquidator or executor, um, and definitely the timing on when you are choosing to execute your estate planning. Um, you know, I think today people consider, let's say, the role of a liquidator or an executor to be quite an honor, actually. And don't get me wrong, it definitely is. But what I think more and more people are going to start learning is that it's a really big responsibility on, let's say, one or two people that you're deciding to appoint. You know, today, a lot of our lives are really busy. Um, so many commitments, families, work, uh, travel. We live in just different jurisdictions. You know, our, our world and our lives are moving so fast. And to dedicate, I don't know, 12 to 18 months minimum of just pure administration work is quite the add-on for some people. 
it's kind of like the same logic um, on the importance of the timing in your life and when to start thinking of your of planning your estate. You know, people, I think people have this misconception that you need to be, uh, I don't know, at a certain level in order for an estate plan to be useful. Um, what some might not realize is things happen in life. You know, the, the unexpected happen. And when you need a will or you need uh, a plan for your succession and your family, you know, you might not have one. Uh, the moment you own assets, uh, you're starting out in your professional career, you're starting out as an entrepreneur, you've started a family, uh, it's really time to start thinking about how you would want things managed. So same thing when you're in that mode of starting to think about your estate plan, you'd want to decide who are you going to appoint to handle your whole estate. And it's also really important to talk to the person about it in advance. You know, I'm a really true believer in that. Don't be afraid to inquire on what are, I don't know, the, let's say, 180 duties that come with being a liquidator of a succession. And don't be afraid to say, you know, that you might need help doing that from a third party whose job it is to do exactly that work. That could be, I don't know, your lawyer, your accountant, uh, your notary, pretty much any professional who has that, that's that expertise. There's no doubt that they're, you know, becoming an executor or liquidator is, is, is a rather large job. Uh, and I think the one thing people have to consider in this is they, as they take on the role is also the legal responsibility associated with it. Uh, it doesn't come, uh, you know, scot-free at the end of the day, there are some risks associated with becoming a liquidator. And I think a lot of people don't always uh, necessarily ex- recognize that and or talk about it. So I agree if, if your whole objective here is communication, uh, you know, you, you need to have that conversation conversation with your executors before they accept. Yeah, definitely. I don't think people realize just on the point of risk. It's it's there's major there's major liabilities, both legal and 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 financial liabilities that that you have to take on. So that that piece of, you know, discussing that and really inquiring about all that is is really really important. What's your biggest challenge in in putting together a succession plan? I would say the biggest challenge uh in planning your succession I mean, it's definitely family dynamics, right? Uh, today, more than ever, um, I think we we all have different sorts of family structures and it's managing all those moving parts and individuals that can, you know, 100% make it challenging when putting together uh, your plan. You know, not all family lives in the same jurisdiction as you. So appointing them as liquidator or your beneficiary has to be questioned. You know, there's there's major, major repercussions to, to consider when doing that. Um, some family members don't also necessarily get along. Uh, so the individual has to make sure when choosing who gets what in their will, that it, you know, it doesn't cause further issues down the line, that you might not be there in, in, in that time to explain or to justify your rationale, right? Um, there's also the topic of second marriages, you know, stepchildren, and that also has to be carefully considered and maneuvered when planning out your estate. I think people should, uh, you know, one of the most important things is, is to get guidance from a professional, uh, whether it would be, like I said, your lawyer, your notary, your accountant, just, just someone who might know you and your family well, and, 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 and your specific family dynamic and structure when planning out your succession is, definitely something that that I would consider um, guiding clients in doing. They can have pointers from other uh, from other experiences on how to go about certain things that some might find useful and talking about it. Like I said, you know, talking about it with your family, with your friends, with with anyone you're planning on incorporating in your in your will beforehand does truly save a lot of unanswered questions in the end. 
been very uh, very politically correct in, in in your comments, Amanda. I think some of the biggest <laughs> battles we've ever seen revolve around the family dynamics on distribution of wealth and how it's amazing how once the last parent uh, passes away, the true colors of the kids come out. So, uh, yeah, I think you're 100% right. That whole dynamics discussion is, is vital. Uh, then again, there's the occasional parent who says to me, I'm not going to be here, so I don't care. <laughs> Yeah, we got to get away from that mentality, right? Let's try to steer away from that. <laughs> Think of the children. Uh, Amanda Curry, Estates at Abedio Canada. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. And as we come to the end of our show, let's turn to our guest, Sam Youssef, the founder and CEO of Valsoft, and ask him for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Sam, what do you think? For me, uh, I think starting early is really important. I've always said, you know, uh, your failures are the pillars for your future successes. And uh, and I've certainly had my fair share of failures. I've probably had more businesses that, that, that failed than the ones that succeeded. But the ones that succeeded were several times uh, the ones that failed. So I had a good outcome in my career. And also I had failures early in my career. And I think that's really important to get experience. Uh, uh, behind you early the the time you have to devote to your career and the risks you can take early in your life before you have a family and responsibility and bills and whatnot are are uh, it's an advantage right and this is something that uh, uh, you you should take the other the other advice i would have would be work on your your salesmanship salesmanship and the ability to sell yourself to investors to prospective employees uh, sell your vision to your team uh, sell your products to the external world it's extremely important uh, and it plays a role in in sort of everything you're going to do as an entrepreneur in the early parts of your of your journey uh, even more so and Micah, talk about ambition, just a lot of acquisitions and a lot to manage for Sam. Yeah, definitely. And and certainly like like Sam says, you know, getting that early start on things uh, for a lot of people makes a big difference. You know, the opportunity to make mistakes and learn from them at an early age, uh, the implications sometimes are a lot less daunting than they are as as we get older. So uh, great, to, great to see the ambition, great to see the, uh, I guess, the aggressive approach to, to doing things, Sam. Thanks for stopping by, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles over the last 15 years. See you back here next week, Mike. Thanks, Dan. Be well. Good talk.